Okay, y'all, I misplaced a question, but then on my desk this morning was another question. So I'm going to go ahead and answer that one. Uh, The question that was given or was placed on my desk this morning is, given the poetic nature of the dialogue, do you consider Job to be fact or fable? Uh, I think I touched upon this at the beginning, and but maybe it's it's certainly worth repeating. Um, the book of Job itself considers itself fact or historical reality. The prologue itself uh, is about a, a very specific person in the ancient Near East who has a name, who lives in a specific place, and has a specific family and a specific livelihood. And that's the the presentation of the scriptures itself is that it is fact. In fact, the New Testament writers affirm Job as historical history. Uh, that might not be how um, academies and other folks esteem the book, but that's certainly how the book presents itself. And that's certainly how I see the book as uh, a highly selective theological history. We've talked about this on Wednesday nights and even sometimes this morning. The scriptures are not an exhaustive Unger's history of the world so that you get all the ins and outs of the Babylonian invasions and you get all the ins and outs even of all the Israeli kings and all the things that went on in Israel. That's not its purpose. Its purpose is highly selective history. Theological history. And what I mean by that is God's interpretation of real history and real events. So there's one author who has composed and has taken, even John says, if I wrote about all the things Jesus did, there isn't enough enough libraries in all the world to contain it. And he has what, 20 some odd chapters in his book? Uh, So John was selective because the storyline of the Bible is the point and God's interpretation of it, okay? So Job is part of the storyline, the historical storyline, all right? Now, the second year into uh, planting Redeemer, we started officing in a building on Sanger by the YMCA. In fact, Sarah, then Eisenbarth, now Mormon, was one of our, I think, were you our first? Or was Amy, the first secretary? Amy, technically, and then Sarah came in after. We've had some... We had some wild times at Sanger, didn't we? She can tell her story. I'll tell you mine. Um, I was leading a weekly training meeting of, uh, of guys that were interested or considering going into ministry, uh, those who were very close to entering ministry, uh, to those who were investigating it and definitely going, to those who were going to be future leaders in this church. Uh, some of those guys are in this room. Some of those guys are now serving the Lord in gospel ministry in other places of the country and, um, and even the world. Uh, well, in the middle of that meeting, I got a phone call and I look at it and I see that it's my wife. So I better answer the phone, right? Uh, when at this time, I should probably give you some background at this time, we have three of our five kids and their ages are six, four, and two. Six Cal, four Knox, I mean, four Bryn, two Knox, and then Nancy's probably about five months pregnant with Belle at this time. And when I hit click, my world went into ultra hyper slow motion. I mean, I could see the facial hair on the men in that room growing. I could hear the roly poly crawling in the right hand corner of the room. And in between these 
desperate gasps on the other end of the line, I hear knife, knocks, his eye, get here quick. My world slowed down to raw, brutal, nasty ticks. Ticks. Uh, when that happened, I didn't hear the get here quick part. Um, something deep inside just broke. And from that broken place, without any thought, without any hesitation, I yelled, no. Right? And instinctively, as naturally as breathing, put my hand right through the wall. C.S. Lewis, uh, when he was recalling the pain of losing his wife, he said his prayers were more like a yell than anything else. What we have in Job 3 is the raw, nasty, brutal yell of the human soul when it breaks. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. There are selective readings here, and we're going to be doing selective readings for the rest of our time, probably, because all the cycles are going to be either a chapter, two chapters, sometimes four chapters. We're just not going to be able to get it all in print and read it all. So we're going to look at, you'll get the gist of it, 3, 1 through 13, then we're going to look at 20 through 26. Okay, here we go. Uh, After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, let the day perish in which I was born and the night. He's linking his conception and his birth date together that said a man is conceived. Usually that's a happy day, right? Especially in the ancient Near East. Everything, everything was pinned on a firstborn son. Let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. That night, let thick darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. Behold, let that night be barren. Let no joyful cry enter it. Let those who curse it curse the day who are ready to rouse up Leviathan or the Kraken. Let the stars of its dawn be dark. Let it hope for light but have none, nor see the eyelids of the morning, because it did not shut the doors of my mother's womb, nor hide trouble from my eyes. Why did I not die at birth, come out from the womb and expire? Why did the knees receive me, or why the breast that I should nurse? For then I would have lain down and been quiet. I would have slept... Then I would have been at rest. Let's go over to 20. Why is light given to him who is in misery and life to the bitter in soul, who long for death, but it comes not, who dig for it more than hidden treasures, who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave? Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? For my sighing comes instead of my bread, and my groanings are poured out like water. For the thing that I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Oh God, we pray for your blessing 
You're breaking in blessing upon your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I want you to look at verse 1. After this, what is that after? This is after that weird um, funeral ritual that the three friends had for a living person. Remember, the seven days of mourning and the seven nights of mourning, this ancient Near Eastern ritual for funeral processions. Well, after that, Job opened his mouth. Now, Job is going to speak first. He's also going to speak last in 27 through 31. There's the literary cue for us to see a a major section, which is called traditionally the three speech cycles. So Job begins it, Job ends it, and there are three repetitive cycles of speaking to one another and responding to each other that take place for the rest of the book until we get to a different section, all right? Now, it says here that Job opened his mouth and cursed. Now, I bet, and you can imagine, if we were to peek again into the heavenly lens, we would see the Satan holding his breath. Ah, you bet. Curse God and die, Job. Curse God and I win, right? We get... After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. So Job certainly curses, but he doesn't curse God. And that means to renounce God. That means to replace God. That means to find something else to be his God. Curse God. He doesn't curse God. He curses his birth. And he does it in eight poetic verses. Starting at verse 3, long ones. Now, what I want you to do as we begin to look at this, I don't want you to get hung up on the irrationality of what Job is saying. I mean, I know we're all thinking, Job, you don't make sense. You know you can't strike your birth date from the calendar. You can't do that. right? And I also don't want us to get caught up in over-intellectualizing what's happening here with really good doctrine. Like, come on, Job. Have you forgotten God's sovereignty and his providence? Don't you know that God works all things for the good of those who love him? Right? The, this passage won't let us do that. This passage, Job 3, goes in a completely different direction. It goes into the direction and makes us walk into the direction of the mess of Job's pain. We have to go there. It won't not let us go there. It won't let us say, you're irrational. It won't let us say, oh, let's overthink it. Let's just throw out our pure doctrine at him. It won't let us do that. He's going to take us into this path. So be taken in. And how messy is it? Well, it's pretty messy. The very last word that Job speaks and the very first words that he speaks out other than what we saw earlier to his wife is trouble. Verse 26, the last word Job speaks in chapter 3, trouble. Now the ESV translates it, trouble comes, but the original language just ends with, but comes, trouble Trouble has the last word. Trouble is all Job has. Trouble is all that's left. Now, did you see also the let there be light language that runs through 3 through 10? Did you catch that? Did you catch that the theme of rest in verse 13, 17, and 18? And how about how there's the ending of no rest 
in verse 26. So what Job's doing here is he's actually calling for an act of decreation. So instead of let there be light climaxing with the Sabbath rest, which the Genesis 1 account gets, right? We have let there be darkness climaxing in no rest. Job is calling for a creative act in reverse where the chaos comes back and reclaims the creation, where the darkness comes back and reclaims the light, where the wasteland comes back and creates or recreates and decreates and reclaims what's good, specifically his birthday. Now, this is pretty messy. This is how Job feels. He probably doesn't want to feel this way. But he does. And Job 3 is inviting us to enter into it. Into the drama of his soul. The bottom line is this. Job wishes that he had never been born at all. Why? Because there wouldn't be the pain of verse 26. Look at verse 26. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but comes trouble. Now, what do we do with this? What do we do with this passage? Don't miss this. This is the point of the whole passage. God is endorsing everything Job feels. God is endorsing all of it. God is endorsing all the prayer of pain here. And this is shocking. This would have been so shocking in the ancient Near East, and that's why we're going to see the other ancient Near East people respond accordingly. It's so shocking because you don't talk to the gods this way. You don't express yourself to the gods this way. In fact, in those days and at that time, you don't do that in the ancient world, and you don't do it in the modern world. You try to get along, you try not to call attention to yourself. You don't want them thinking about you. You don't want undue attention upon you. Because you don't want to awaken the Kraken or the Leviathan that we're going to be seeing later on in this book. And why? So how do we know that God of the Bible, though, is endorsing all this? How do we know he's not like the other gods of the day? How do we know he's not like the gods in our day? Well, first, we know that Job 3 is recorded here because God wants it here. And he wants it here not for Job, because this was recorded after Job's time. Probably. It's recorded for us. And in other evidence, when you start really poking around the Bible, you start really discovering things. You start realizing that you know that Israel's official hymn book, the official hymn book that comes bound and given directly by God, half of it, called the Psalms, half of them are laments. Half of Israel's official worship is praying pain. 
It's the dark night of the soul. It's the cry of the soul. It's the brutal, nasty, raw places. It's life with no silver linings and no happy endings and no color. Half of Israel's official worship of God is praying pain. This is also why Jeremiah, which is interesting, wrote a whole book on praying your pain called Lamentations. And in Lamentations, he strangely, interestingly, uses almost the exact same language that Job uses to describe how he feels about wishing he'd never been born at all. And then, okay, let's look. You got, all of a sudden, you got the greatest prophet that ever lived, Elijah. And you got the greatest apostle that ever lived, Paul. And they both despaired of their life. And God made sure it was recorded. Bruce Waltke, who's an Old Testament scholar, and he has no rivals, all right? He has none. He says of Job, Job experiences the full pain of his suffering because he is psychologically well. And values honesty. Had Israel embraced their sufferings in Egypt with stoicism, denial, or false optimism, they'd still be there. In other words, God's way to suffer is to pray your pain. The first answer to our suffering. What do you do when you suffer? What do you do when your world's turned upside down? What do you do when you're paralyzed with darkness? What do you do when you you can't think clearly? What do you do when it's just slowed down to raw, brutal, incremental ticks? What do you do? God says, pray your pain. Pray it to me. Praying your pain is walking by faith. It's as human as it gets. It's as godly as it gets. Praying your pain is true worship of God. It's official, sanctioned, ordained worship. It pleases God. Praying your pain is God glorifying. It makes God famous. Do you know that when we pray our pain, what ends up happening is it's the beginning of the knowledge of God being pushed deeper into our lives and being pushed deeper into other people's lives. It's God exalting and it's God glorifying. Praying our pain is real Christianity. It's a real life of faith. So if we were to say, what's real Christianity? What's, what's real worship? What's a, what's a real life of faith? You know what we have to say according to the scriptures? At least half of it's lament. Half of it's praying your pain. Do we think that way? I don't know. I mean, the other half, you know, you want to say is, is, you know, happy stuff, right? Yeah, you bet. But it seems like 
It's always supposed to be happy. And we seem to be this um, disingenuous, fake people that have really nothing to really say substantially about real life. Praying your pain is not surrendering to your pain, though. And that's what Job's going to be accused of. Surrendering to your pain is bowing down to it. We've seen this before. Surrendering your pain is having your pain control you, having it rule over you, having it dominate you. Praying your pain is not surrendering to your pain. Surrendering to your pain is is what's taking place in verse 18, or at least what's being described in verse 18. It's what he's seeking to get away from. There, the prisoners are at ease together. They've left... They've not heard the voice of the taskmaster. Do you see that? The small and the great are there, and the slave is free from his master. What's happening? When, when we surrender to our pain, it looks like replacing God with pain. Do you see that? When we surrender to our pain, we replace God with pain. And pain becomes a taskmaster. It cracks a whip. It demands its pound of flesh. It brutalizes and punishes. It enslaves and imprisons. It locks in despair and it locks in desperation and it locks in darkness and it locks out deliverance and it locks out hope. Surrendering to our pain looks like suicide. Surrendering to our pain looks like addictive behavior. Surrendering to our pain looks like not being able to forgive. Surrendering to our pain looks like outbursts of anger and holding grudges. Surrendering to our pain looks like blaming God, blaming others, blaming ourselves. Because when pain replaces God... It always demands a payment. It's a taskmaster. So if pain exists, someone blew it somewhere. Either you blew it, someone in your family blew it, or God blew it, and you're going to demand a payment. Now, praying your pain is also not stuffing your pain. After Job curses in verses 3 through 10... This is one long string of cursing. 11 through 26, he goes into this questioning. So he moves from cursing to questioning. And so Job starts questioning everything. You got him saying, oh God, why did you not let me die at birth? Right? Verse 11. Why didn't you just dry up my mother's milk so I could have starved to death? Verse 12. There are five questions here. Why wasn't I stillborn? Verse 16. You know, why do you keep people who are in massive misery alive. Verse 20 through 22. Why do you keep alive the man whose only path in life, I mean his only path, the path you've planned, the path you've presented to him, is pain. Why do you keep him alive? When you suffer, there are three ways to, to live in your suffering. You can pray your pain like Job. 
You can surrender to your pain like Job's wife. Or you can stuff your pain like Job's friends. What does that look like? Well, if you notice, they couldn't handle what he was saying. I mean, it's too much. When you combine cursing with questioning God, it was too much for them. It was TMI, right? Too much information. They just couldn't handle it. And so they started stuffing, and that's what we're going to see, and we're going to spend lots of time on it. But I just want you to get a picture of what stuffing your pain looks like. It looks like drivenness and burnout. It looks like trying to control your life. Stuff in your pain looks like pushing down doubts and fears and anxiety and anger and worry and hurt further and further down. It looks like trying to fix yourself. It looks like trying to fix your pain. It looks like trying to fix everybody around you. It looks like being a big fixer. It looks like building relational walls. You start withdrawing and getting isolated more and more into yourself and less and less engaged with people. Now, some of you I know are thinking, I don't know how to stop stuffing my pain. I don't know how to stop surrendering to my pain. I don't know how to start praying my pain. Moments before the perfect man, the only righteous man, the only innocent man, moments before he died, do you know what he did? He prayed a lament psalm. He prayed his pain. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Elise Fitzpatrick, who's one of my favorite authors, she has now written a book that's just like turning the Christian parenting world upside down. It's called Give Them Grace, Dazzling Your Kids with the Love of Jesus. In it, she says, she says, talking to parents, but I want you to hear what we're getting at. She says to parents, you cannot raise good kids because you're not a good parent. There's only one good parent who had one good son. And together, they accomplished everything necessary to rescue you from certain destruction. We could say to rescue you from the ultimate pain. The ultimate lament. Cosmic rejection, abandonment, alienation, condemnation, death. God the Son was forsaken. He was rejected. He was destroyed. He was forsaken by God the Father so you would never have to be. God the Son suffered the ultimate, the greatest lament for those who are bad parents and bad children. So that's all of us. So that we would never see that ultimate of all laments, eternal justice of God. Brothers and sisters, when you see Jesus' lament, 
that cosmic lament on the cross, you'll begin to learn to start praying your pain. Because you'll be free to. You won't have to stuff it because you won't have to try to pretend that you're better than you are. You won't have to stuff it because you don't have to try to hold back all the forces of decreation as if you're God. You don't have to surrender to it because pain is not God. It's not bigger than God. You pray it. That's real Christianity. Amen.